The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmilzer. And if this is your first AI Today podcast episode, maybe you're interested in our fantastic guest we have today. You may not be aware that we have almost four years and 200 episodes recorded as of this date here in 2021 uh, for the AI Today podcast. And we've really interviewed quite a few luminaries and quite a few experts uh, from a wide variety of perspectives on this uh, artificial intelligence journey that we're on and where organizations are implementing and how they're implementing AI uh, within their organization. So it could be, you know, folks from industries such as Colin Angle, the founder of iRobot, or Ben Gertzel, who is a founder of SingularityNet and the Sophia Robot, or folks from different industries. We've had folks from uh, pharmaceutical and manufacturing and retail and automotive, you know, and organizations and companies uh, far and wide in Australia and the United Kingdom and Norway. So uh, we know our listenership is very international as well. And so we really want to thank you all for listening to us here and being part of our great community uh, that's sharing with you their insights into how AI is being put in practice today. So uh, really, long story short, you know, if you're interested in hearing these great interviews, uh, some of our insights into where the market is heading with AI and machine learning, uh, some of our research that we produce at Cognolytica, we're an analyst firm that really focuses on AI and machine learning. We do share some of that research here on the AI Today podcast. We just encourage you to make sure to subscribe to the AI Today podcast on your favorite podcast provider so that this is not necessarily the only episode you listen to. So uh, without further ado, really would love to bring in our featured guest here on AI Today. Right. And as Ron mentioned, you know, we have many interviews that we do and we love each of them because it helps bring such, you know, different and unique perspectives. Our guest today is Justin Marsico, who is the Chief Data Officer at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service, a part of the United States Department of the Treasury. Hi, Justin, and thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background, your current role at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service, and maybe for some of our listeners that aren't aware of what that is, you could explain that as well. Sure. So I'm Justin, and I'm the Chief State Officer at the, the Fiscal Service. I'll start by talking a little bit about what the Fiscal Service does, because um, it's not a widely known entity outside of uh, the circle of government finance. So the Fiscal Service is part of the Treasury Department, which is the United States Finance Ministry. And what we focus on is helping to support the financial operations of the United States government. And before I say what that means, I want to say that the financial operations of the United States government are a pretty large and significant enterprise. Um, we had around $7 trillion of spending. Uh, in the last fiscal year, which is a little bit large uh, for our typical year. Um, but the typical year um, in the last four or five years has been about $5 trillion in, uh, in spending. So there's a lot of transactions that are coming through um, the fiscal service. And we help to support the federal government by making uh, payments 
on behalf of federal agencies. If uh, the Social Security Administration needs to pay uh, Social Security recipients, we help to disperse those payments. When the IRS needs to collect revenue that's due to the government, we help to collect that revenue. We sell securities, uh, both in the form of savings bonds to individual investors, as well as uh, through auctions. Um, and finally, we help agencies keep track of how much money they have uh, to spend that's been appropriated by Congress. Um, so within that universe, my role as the chief data officer is basically to do two things. One is to focus on taking all of that data that we collect from federal agencies and making it available to the public. Um, so because we are the, the center of financial operations, it means we have a lot of data that um, is valuable to the public about the financial ongoings of the, the federal government. And those activities are something that we take very seriously because um, as a part of a democratic society, um, we feel like it's really important to be open and honest about how we are disclosing information about how we're making use of taxpayer resources to the to the public. Um, so the way that we do that is through a couple of mechanisms. We have a website that we run called Fiscal Data, which listeners could check out at fiscaldata.treasury.gov, um, where you can go to find information about interest rates on uh, securities debt, uh, exchange rates, um, information about the history of the debt. Uh, and then we have a second website called usaspending.gov where you can go to find information about federal contracts and grants that have been issued by agencies across the federal government. So that's the, the first thing I do. The second thing I do is focus on uh, data strategy. So looking at the way that we treat data internally um, and improving our data management practices. And then um, one of the most exciting things I do is help put that data to work through analytics. Um, and we are trying to get started um, in using advanced analytics to make sure that we are pushing ourselves to drive down costs and to, to be as effective as we can be. Yeah, well, that's great. You know, data is such a vital, vital role within organizations today, I mean, across the world, every organization worldwide, it's kind of almost hard to even believe that you know, the United States government in part was functioning for like 100, 200 years without without access to, you know, searchable data. Of course, we're in the information age, you know. Back in the day, we had rooms of, uh, of uh, filing cabinets, and the, that was a much, much harder deal to search. But of course, now we are awash in data. And there are a lot of really great insights that organizations and individuals can get just by, you know, doing the right analytics and right searching uh, for this data. Of course, the challenges, and there are many challenges, is just getting that data and, and making sure the data is accurate and clean. And that's actually one of the things that you had talked about um, at our recent machine learning lifecycle conference. We had you on a panel with a few others. We were talking about some of the challenges uh, around data at the federal level. And for those who are interested in attending or at least viewing the session content, uh, all of our online conferences are available for free. And we have a great listenership and we have a great attendance from our audience. You just go to ML Lifecycle 
conf, C-O-N-F dot com. And we usually keep up the events for a few months. So if you're listening to this, perhaps later in 2021, we might have the next iteration of these um, conferences, which are, by the way, becoming regular um, communities where we're going to have continuing access to content. So we may actually keep a lot of this content up for a while. But in any case, uh, if you're interested in that, you can definitely attend. Um, you know, but first, maybe you could share with some of the folks here on the podcast who weren't able to attend, you know, what, were, what are some of the unique opportunities uh, around, uh, we'll start first with the opportunity side, uh, the opportunities around data at this government and especially the federal level? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, um, and I'm appreciative of being included on that that panel as well. It's a really interesting discussion. Um, I think at the federal government level in the United States, um, the biggest opportunities are about they kind of come from the passage of a law uh, from a couple of years ago, which is called the Evidence Based Policy Making Act. Um, and for those who are not uh, attuned to the uh, the legal area here in the United States. What the Evidence Act did is it required federal agencies to appoint chief data officers um, at the, the major agencies around the government. In addition to doing that, it kicked off a process of that's been led by the the White House um, of something called the Federal Data Strategy. And basically what the federal data strategy is doing is saying, you know, in this law, there are responsibilities for chief data officers uh, to take on across the government, but we're going to try and help to develop a roadmap to show how we get from point A to point B. So the federal data strategy has been really helpful um, for both raising the the prospect of doing things related to data and showing the value of doing that, and also just giving a roadmap for, for what agencies should be working on. So I, I think there are a lot of opportunities that have come about as a result of that. But basically, the way that I think about it is that, you know, we've been focused on, on data for a very long time. As you pointed out, you know, data can be reams of paper and filing cabinets. Um, and then, you know, moving on to data and mainframes and data that we have uh, today. Um, so it's always been something that we've been focused on, but really different now is that data leadership has a seat at the table um, to make sure that we're making decisions that will allow us to be smarter um, as entities who are serving the public. Yeah, I think that's really key. I know one of one of the interesting challenges, well, we'll get into that in the next question honestly, but you know, one of the interesting things about this opportunity is that is that we've I think we're tr- starting to understand the value of data as a resource, as an asset in generating it. Uh, generating all this data, data is actually plural. I should say all the all the data, those data, um, and you know, I think I think you know before we sort of get into to talking about some of the challenges around um, you know data management and all those things, uh, I guess really sort of like how how are you interacting with uh, all the providers of data in the government? Because to some extent. You know, you're creating the data yourself to your uh, data generators and providers, but to a larger extent, you're also needing to collect that data. So, have you? What are sort of the the the, the processes and protocols and things that have evolved, perhaps in the last few years, that have aimed to simplify that data collection and aggregation challenge? 
Yes, that's a it's a great question. It's something that we think about a lot in our space um, of the fiscal service because we're always asking for tons of data from federal agencies. Um, so we're we're always trying to be mindful of how we can ask for those data in a way that doesn't uh, cost a lot for agencies um, and create a lot of confusion. Um, so the way that we refer to this is we're always asking a question, how do we reduce agencies' burden? You know, so agencies, federal agencies have to submit information to the fiscal service about their spending, or if they want payments dispersed, um, they have to submit information to us so we know where to send the payments. Um, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And actually, one of the big significant changes in this space uh, came from another law. Um, I hope I'm not boring your listeners with all the legal references um, that came came about in 2014. It was called the Data Act. Um, and one of the functions of the Data Act was to create standardization across the federal government related to some key fields to make sure that when federal agencies were sending information to us about their spending, um, they were having a common understanding about what those terms meant. Um, and then also, we're making sure that we're doing reconciliation um, between different types of systems in federal agencies that generate data. So if an agency is issuing contracts, they may send us a file from their contract system, but we also are getting a file from their financial system and then kind of marrying those two together to ensure that there is a, a high level of data quality before that information is disclosed um, to the public. So that's one example of an, an initiative that we've been working on um, in collaboration with the data producers, the federal agencies, um, to try to reduce their burden, but then also to ensure that there is standardization and, and high data quality. And the data that is produced as a result of the Data Act, um, you can find on usaspending.gov. So if you go to that site today, you can find all of agencies' grants or contracts. Um, so if you're interested in SBA's uh, PPP program, uh, you can find the recipient's uh, of those loans, or if you're interested in contracts by the Defense Department, you can you can find those as well. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. If our listeners are interested, we definitely encourage you to check that out. And, you know, we want to dig a little bit deeper into some of these data challenges because we know that, you know, <laughs> data just continues to grow. So what are some of the challenges around uh, you know, data governance, data security, ownership, and then other data-related issues that can slow down the adoption of, you know, AI projects, advanced analytics projects, and, and things in general that you're seeing? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I've got two thoughts about this. And the first is not really related to anything that's specific to data or data governance. Um, it's just about our culture and um, the lack of knowledge about AI. So I think that one of the, the biggest hurdles to uh, AI adoption is just a lack of awareness about what types of problems AI can solve. Um, and as a complement to that, 
understanding how or difficult it is to adopt AI-related solutions. Um, so it's something that we're, fo- we're focused a little bit on, uh, we're starting to focus on at the, at the fiscal service, is really taking a look at our culture um, and trying to bring in interesting use cases and to raise awareness about them, you know, not necessarily things that are going on at our agency, um, but things that, are, that people are doing um, in the private sector or at other agencies um, to kind of get people excited and get people thinking about what the art of the possible is. Um, so I'd say that's, that's one thing that uh, I, I think we can make a lot of progress on by just kind of seeding uh, information and, and kind of seeing what, uh, what comes up. Uh, the, the second thing that I think about that, that slows down our adoption is really more typical, and it's that our data, the data that we capture isn't always in the right format or in the right location um, for it to be immediately um, accessible. You know, and there are a couple examples of this that, that I've seen um, in, in my career. I spent some time working in an inspector general office. Um, a number of years ago, and for those who are not familiar with this this model, an inspector general is basically a part of a federal agency that looks for uh, fraud, waste, and abuse and tries to stop it. Um, and one of the things that I found is that there is information that exists which we could use to train models um, about, you know, what a fraudulent transaction looks like or what a problematic transaction looks like or what a high-risk transaction looks like. Um, But it's in a different data system (laughs) that's like managed by someone else and governed by different rules. Um, And the amount of time and energy it takes to actually bring those two types of data together um, is pretty significant. And then, you know, back to the, the the legal discussion we're having before, there are also um, a number of laws, uh, namely the Computer Matching Act in the United States, that govern whether different data sets can be brought into uh, brought together to do the types of um, analyses. So that's one example of you know the data not always being exactly where it needed to be or in the right system. And then something else that uh, comes to mind is that. Sometimes we don't always treat data as data, um, and so it's not in a structured format when we when we need it to be. And I'll, I'll give you another example here of something that I'm working on right now, which is pretty exciting. It's a uh, a use case that's focused on developing warrants, and basically, what a warrant is is when Congress appropriates money for federal agencies to spend. Um, Part of the process that starts with Congress and that ends with agencies actually spending money involves a team of experts at Treasury who read through the legislation, study it, mark it up, and then take the dollar amounts that are in the legislation and put it into a system that authorizes agencies to actually spend money. So if you've ever looked through a piece of uh, appropriations legislation, you can imagine that at, you know, sometimes a thousand or more pages, it takes a long time for our team to go through and to say, okay, here's the Forest Service. 
they get you know this amount appropriated for this time period for this purpose, and then to take that out of the PDF and to put it into a structured data format. So what we're trying to do right now is to use natural language processing um, to tear apart those PDFs and to make it into structured data so that instead of having our analysts go through and do the first take at you know reading through and tagging uh, the, the legislation, we'll have um, our AI do the first take and then the, the humans can assist the AI or, or correct it. But one of the challenges that we have is that our our ground truth, which is all of the previous times when when our experts have marked up laws, um, hasn't been done in a structured data format. It's been done in the form of comments that are written onto uh, pieces of paper or comments that are written onto PDFs. So it's hard to go and just get of that data and, and lift it up and use it to, to train models, um, which is what we ultimately want to do because we weren't thinking of that data as structured data before as it was being entered into PDF. So anyway, all of that is to say that uh, sometimes we don't have all the data that we need um, and we have to do some extra work to, to get it in order to make uh, advanced analytics work. Yeah, good stuff. I know that, you know, that is the challenge for most organizations is really around the data engineering side and a lot of those data quality issues. As a matter of fact, we had a whole conference just focused on the data side of AI called Data for AI. Uh, not particularly, you know, groundbreaking in terms of a title here, but it was really very useful because we spent most of the time, a lot of it had, hadn't honestly really very little to do with AI and machine learning. A lot of it is just, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of getting data into a format that you can actually make these you know, a uh, higher value analytics. And, and it was really great to hear about the NLP work that you guys are doing at the, with the PDFs. It's, a, it's very much um, a hot topic, this whole digitization and the and content intelligence and much more increased forms. And, you know, may, maybe like 10 years from now, we'll be like, that's not even really AI. That's just, you know, you know, natural language stuff. And we'll be like, yeah, but, uh, you know, back then it wasn't as easy as, as it might have been these days when you have all these trained models. So, um, you know, part of, of what you were hinting at is that there are these really interesting and unique opportunities uh, that the public sector has around AI, you know, uh, to do some of these things in these large amounts of data, large scale of data that we that we couldn't necessarily do uh, before with the use of AI. And something we'd spend a lot of our time, by the way, talking about in our training and education. Some of our, our audience knows that we uh, have a certification for AI and machine learning project management called CPMAI. And that really focuses on the life cycle of making AI machine learning projects happen. And, um, you know, part of, a lot of it, like four of those five steps have to do with data preparation, data understanding, data cleansing, and all that sort of stuff. But um, when you do all that, you really can see some real benefits. So maybe you could talk about some of the areas that you're seeing AI effectively putting into use in the federal government or machine learning, advanced forms of data analytics, you know, uh, we can look at all the seven patterns of AI for those implementations. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, I, you know, what comes to mind is um, some of the work that's coming out of uh, DARPA. Um, and, you know, particularly over the, over the summer, there was uh, the, I think the results of a uh, um, a project that they were doing uh, where they built um, an AI that was controlling an F-16 fighter jet. And 
and, and, you know, just like stepping back from this a little bit, you know, being a, a pilot um, of a fighter jet is something that takes a great amount of expertise, a long, uh, you know, an incredible amount of training hours. Um, and they took an AI and put it up against a, a seasoned pilot of an F-16 fighter jet and, you know, basically put the, the two through a dogfight. And the AI won uh, in, I think they did five rounds and the AI won in, in every single round. And I think that was kind of eye-opening um, for, you know, like stepping back and looking at what the universe of, of possibilities um, are here to, to think about that application and something that is, you know, that, that typically takes so much time and, and resources um, to uh, develop that level of, of expertise, um, I, I think was really eye-opening for a lot of people in the in the community. Yeah, you know, and we always like like hearing about this stuff. You know, Justin, this has been a really incredible podcast. I know that our guests and listeners have uh, hopefully attended or got to watch on replay the Machine Learning Lifecycle Conference, and in particular, your panel that was on there. And then, um, you know, in addition, this podcast as well. It's been very informative. We always like having guests on. We learn so much. And we like to wrap up each podcast by asking every guest the same question because we always get such a variety of different responses. As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to governments, organizations, and beyond? You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about since we've been uh, in a remote work environment is how many of the processes that we have in the government, which are paper-based, and um, and those processes, I think we've done a really good job of adapting to the remote environment. Um, but it's allowed me to stop back or to to stop and to to step back and think. Um, you know, when you have a paper based process um, and you want to sign a piece of paper and you go and you know hand it to the person in the office that's next to you, it just it's it's just marginally harder to do that. Um, when everybody is remote. And it's caused me to think um, maybe some of our processes um, could use uh, a rethink. Um, and, and actually that kind of thinking is what led to the the Warrant AI uh, project that I was talking a little bit about before, um, where we start asking those questions of, you know, this is our process today. This is the way that we've done it for the last 20, 30 years. But do we need to be doing the same thing uh, in the future? That's one thing I think about is, is how to improve the, the processes that we have um, today. Um, and the second thing I think is a good area of focus is the provision of government services. Um, you know, providing services to the public um, is something that is time intensive and, and costly, um, but it's also really critical. It's one of the key jobs of a government is to be responsive to uh, the citizenry. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting uh, use cases that are coming about in this area, just thinking about augmenting customer service responsiveness and, and chatbots. So I'm pretty excited about uh, the future um, of the government responding better to the, to the public using AI. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I mean, 
the public uh, use of AI is uh, what we are all about here because you know trying to understand the the future of where all this is heading and you know trying to make like real practical use because at the end of the day I mean you know we love the fantasy nature of, uh, of artificial intelligence you know, we're all sort of drawn to that you know sort of like the futuristic possibility of what we could do with autonomous systems and intelligent systems and um, you know all that but at but the reality of it is that you know a lot of the day-to-day practicality of uh, AI comes from you know these more um, you know uh, menial thing. I don't call them menial. It's just like the the things that are more hidden, which is like you know analyzing our data, looking at our documents, helping us with the conversations we have, chatbots and conversational systems, recognition systems, looking at the images and the unstructured data we have, predictive analytics, helping us make better decisions, or anomaly and pattern detection or maybe helping us develop a, a profile of someone with all this data and tailor our products and services to the very specific needs of that individual. And of course, maybe using systems to help us find the optimal solution to a puzzle. Those are, by the way, all the seven patterns of AI that we've described there. And a lot of that, you know, is, is much more um, menial. Or I would say, ah, menial is really not, not the right word. It's like much, much less sexy, <laughs> you know, more hidden. Um, but there's an awful lot of that out there. And, and I think that's, that's really useful. So we've really enjoyed having your insight here, uh, you know, shared with our with our audience and community. And I don't know do you, if you have any additional words. Maybe you want to share some insights as to kind of where all this is heading. That maybe within the your bureau or within the government that you can foresee. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm really excited about um, you know starting to think broadly about what types of use cases. Um, can be successful with the amount of data that we have. You know, so um, I mentioned before that we still have challenges with getting all the data into the right place, um, but we're just getting started right now to think of what our advanced analytics strategy is, is going to be for the next couple of years. Um, so part of that process means that we're soliciting use cases um, and then trying to vet them against the data to see whether they'll be successful or not. Um, so we're looking at uh, we're looking at some use cases related to entity uh, resolution and recognition, as well as fraud detection, um, and they're all really excited. And I'm I'm hopeful that uh, you know in six months to a year I can report back that we have uh, you know, some some good results from all that work. Great. Well, we'll have to check in and six months to a year from now, maybe get you back on so that you can give an update to all that. So, Justin, we want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I hope it was valuable for your listeners. Yes, I hope so, too. I know that Ron and I both enjoyed it a lot. And, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we always love to have guests on because they bring such different, unique perspectives. Um, and we love to, you know, hear what what they all have to say. So, again, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on your favorite podcast platform, if that's iTunes, Google, Spotify, whatever that is. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to the Machine Learning Lifecycle Conference. Conference. And stay tuned, as we mentioned, you know, we're now moving these into regular communities. So instead of having a multi-day large conference, we'll be having different communities. We already have our AI and government community that's been going
going strong for two years. And we are launching our Data for AI community in April. So check that out. And also we'll be launching soon our machine learning lifecycle community as well. So um, I know that our podcast listeners are great supporters of those communities. So make sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. And we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.